Turn with me this morning in your copy of the Word of God to Mark chapter 7. As we continue our study about Jesus, looking at this fast-paced accounting of his life and ministry, uh, we have seen a great deal and certainly will see a great deal more. And we find ourselves then in another Gentile area. This is another of those Gentile stories. We saw last week the Syrophoenician's daughter, um, where they are pleading with Christ. She is pleading with Christ to heal her. Uh, and, and in that Gentile area there with that Gentile lady. And so we're going to find ourselves in another Gentile region in Mark chapter 7. We're going to read verses 31 through 37. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we read. Our Lord and our God, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant word. And we admit now that we are wholly incapable of understanding it, receiving truth from it. Lord, of knowing you in it. And so we pray, uh, because we know you are there and we know that it is truth, we pray that by your spirit you would illuminate our hearts and our minds that we might that we might get it. And so we pray that you would uh, feed us now from the food of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. We read these words. It says, Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Okay, so this story uh, is to be taken in concert with and in context as it's given with the story about the Syrophoenician woman and the healing of her daughter. Um, and, and I think that one of the ways that uh, helps us to understand part of maybe the main point of this story is to consider it in contrast to that story. Because when we looked last week at the pointed remarks of Jesus and the harshness, if you will, of his interaction with her and we tried to glean some understanding of what he was doing and why that harshness was there, uh, then we turn and there is a very different picture of Christ presented to us in this text about a Christ who is seen as now sort of extremely compassionate and willing to go to great lengths to meet the needs of the one that is before him. And so there seems to be this juxtaposition, if you will, of these two different Jesuses. Well, I would submit to you that they're not two different Jesuses, but that when we consider these stories together, we learn something remarkable about the nature of Jesus' ministry and his intention. And that is simply that Jesus gives us what we need, not always what we want. And we've seen this already. If you remember back 
in the story of Mark, we've seen where Jesus doesn't always give what people want uh, in, in, the, in the region of the, the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes with the, the demoniac that wants to be healed um, and then wants to go with him. Jesus heals him and then he wants to be with him. And what does Jesus say? No, you have to stay here. And so there's this sort of odd situation where Jesus doesn't grant his request. And you can even maybe feel a little bit sorry for the guy who's so filled with joy and thanksgiving and wants to follow Christ. And his commandment is, no, you need to, to stay here in the midst of your countrymen and, and share. And, and so we, we learn and we've seen on multiple occasions so far, even just in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus gives us what we need, not always what we want. And, and, and in light of these two stories, Jesus knows best what our needs are. So it's not just that he gives us what we need, even when we don't want it. It is that he knows our needs and the things that we perceive ourselves to be in need of are often wrong. You know, I told you that I'm thankful that um, many times in my life, the things that I've prayed the most vehemently for, Christ has denied those requests um, because he knew better what I needed and when I needed them. So let's consider then, you know, uh, as we talk about this, keep in mind the story that we read last week about the Syrophoenician's daughter and Jesus's pointedness there. Um, But then there are also some similarities. This is another story uh, about Jesus performing a, a miraculous healing. This is also a story that finds Jesus doing this healing in a Gentile region to Gentile people. So there are some similarities, and I think when you consider it together, then we learn some uh, remarkable things about this passage. Now, one of the things, though, there is a problem as we begin to look at this passage. Look at what it says. It says, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Um, This is problematic, and a lot of people, again, use this geography, if you will, to point to inconsistencies and discrepancies in the Word of God. And here's why. Because if you look at a map and you understand the route that Jesus took, it seems to be saying that Jesus was down at the region of, um, he's down in the Sea of Galilee, and now he's made his way up to Tyre. And then he leaves Tyre, and he goes to Decapolis via Sidon. Well, the problem with that is, is that Sidon, you know, Tyre, if you're looking at a map of the Sea of Galilee, Tyre is kind of up to the northwest. Well, then it's even farther, 10 miles farther north to get to Sidon. And then it's 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. So it would be sort of like going um, from Hattiesburg to Gulfport via Jackson. Uh, It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But what I think is going on here is that what we're not given in this passage is how long the ministry of Christ in this region was. This is not immediate. It is estimated that the region of Tyre and Sidon, he was in that region ministering from anywhere from six to eight months. And so this is in the Gospel of Mark, according to the testimony of Peter, one instance down in the region south of the Sea of Galilee uh, where where it's being recorded for us one particular instance at the end of that lengthy ministry. So it would not have been a problem at all. I mean, you don't always go the quickest route to get where you're going. You go the route that meets your needs and that takes you where you need to go. And so Jesus went from Tyre up to Sidon, and then he came back down to the region of the Sea of Galilee and to the area known as Decapolis. And further, this is the area um, where some ministry has already taken place. If you remember, this is the dark area of that same area. 
man that was possessed by the legion of demons in the uh, land of the Gadarenes. This is in that same general vicinity. So Jesus has already done some striking things in this area. But this is again another Gentile region. Uh, Further, I think that this does show us uh, in contrast to last week's message, if you remember, Jesus was trying to help the Syrophoenician woman by telling her, look, I'm not here for you. Your time is coming. But I told you that he uses the language, uh, uh, the ordinal number language there. He he says, I came first for the Jews because I think that it necessarily shows us that he always intended for his ministry to encompass the Gentiles, that ultimately the gospel would go forth to the Gentile regions and he would bring those from all tribe, tongue, and nation into his midst under the umbrella of the gospel, having been redeemed and born again by the blood of Christ. That was always a part of the plan, but Jesus knew that there was a time and an order to things. However, by continuing in further ministry in Gentile area, what we see is a further extension of Jesus' ministry and a, a greater foreshadowing of the inclusion of the Gentiles that is coming. Right? Shortly after uh, his death, we will, we will get the, the imperative command to go to the nations and to spread the gospel and to make disciples of all the nations. Jesus himself will uh, meet miraculously with Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and strike him down and bring him by grace into his fellowship and then appoint him as the minister to the Gentiles. I mean, you think about Paul's ministry. Paul's the greatest, one of the greatest ministers and theologians that the scriptures, the world, that human history has ever known. And he was expressly given ministry to non-Jewish people. A Jew among Jews who was meeting the needs and reaching with the gospel the dirtiest of the dirty, according to his own culture. So it was coming, and we see a further foreshadowing of that here in this text. So he is in uh, this area, the region of Decapolis down below the Sea of Galilee, and it says that they... Uh, brought to him, it's simply just, I, I think, a general collective there. We're not giving anything about who the they are, but they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. The language here, it means at least that he was stammering in his language, but it means probably that he was completely unable to talk or made or could only make unintelligible sort of sounds. And if you've ever been around someone who, and and our technology is so much better today and and people have a much better opportunity to learn to speak to some degree today. But if you've ever been around someone with a a great uh, impedance in their hearing, what you find is that it also expresses itself in their language and their expressive abilities. Because you have to be able to hear in order to know what to say. And you have to be able to hear yourself to know that you're speaking correctly. And so, the, the impediment of his speech, the stammering at least, or the probably unintelligible sounds more than likely, they are the result of his uh, original problem, I think, which is that the man was deaf. That is, that he did not, to use Jesus' own language that we will come back to later, that he did not have ears to hear. Okay, so keep that in mind also, what we've seen on multiple occasions up to this point in the ministry of Christ. So they bring to him this deaf man, and it's no secret to you. We've read the text. You know the story. Jesus is going to perform yet another miracle. 
Uh, And then let's keep in mind that as we've seen all through the book of Mark, that this is a story not about what Jesus does, but about who Jesus is. So that all of the miracles that Jesus has performed, they are all to the express end to point us to something different, point us to something greater. They are signs. And, you know, there's this old saying that the sign is not the thing signified, which means if you stop at, you know, the, the sign itself is not the thing that is to be grasping our attention. It's pointing us to something else. And if you don't ever get to what it's pointing you to, then you didn't read the sign and you missed the point of the sign altogether. So let's be careful uh, not to make the sign itself the thing signified. And let's remember that all of these miracles are signs that point to something greater. And that pointing is to the person and work of Jesus. So let's consider then the miracle itself, the healing of this deaf and mute man, and then consider together what it teaches us about Jesus. The first thing that I want you to see is that this message, this healing that he gives is personal or it is particular, if you will. This is a theme. Seems like this is the third week in a row. We saw from Isaiah nine that the, that the provision of Jesus, the provision of the Messiah that was coming, that it is for us, that it is a personal provision, that it is not some anonymous universalistic provision. He did not come to just make peace on earth, but he came to bring peace among men with whom he is well pleased that are believing and trusting in Jesus. He came to bring the ultimate peace of reconciliation with God. So it's not this, it's, we've seen this and we saw it last week with the Syrophoenician woman. You remember I made a point about this. Here it is again, that the healing is personal, or if you like, you can say particular. How do we know that? Well, let's look at the details of the text. They're begging him in verse 32 to put his hand on him. That's all they ask because they know from uh, other times in the ministry of Jesus that simply by the touch or by the hem of his garment, you know, grabbing hold of it, that, that something went out of him. Remember he noticed it one time. He didn't know who had touched him, but he knew something had happened. And so there is this sort of transfusion uh, this passing of some some power of Christ that, that heals and brings about restoration. And so they only want him to put his hand upon him. But then what does Jesus do? Well, I mean, in some way he grants their request, but he does it in a in an odd way. And, and, and look, and that's actually going to be our next point, the healing is peculiar. But let, let's look at it first how it's personal. What does he do? And he took him aside from the multitude. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Let me ask you this. All of those that claim to do healings today, do they ever take the people aside in a private place to perform it? No. You know, they're going to do it as public as they can with giant high definition big screens behind them and in front of your face. And guess what they're going to put at the bottom? You know, like here's the number that you can call us with your visa card. that's, That's the Christianity that we live in. That, that's the culture, that's the religious culture even that we live in. And I want you to see that Jesus is so different in his, in his dealings with people. And he does it in a way that is intimate and that is personal. He doesn't, he doesn't stay there with the multitude, and it wasn't even that many people. It was the people that were simply asking him, because the man could not, to heal the deaf and the mute man. And Jesus is going to grant their request, but before he does anything to the man, he takes the man aside in a private, in a personal, in a particular way in order to meet his need. It's very interesting, isn't it? Well, why, why in the world um, 
why in the world would Jesus take him aside from the multitude? Well, let's, let's just think practically for just a moment. You know, I said that Jesus is going to give us what we need. What we don't always understand, but Jesus is going to meet our deepest needs. Let's think about this man's life. If he was deaf, and as we've already talked about from the language here, he at least had a severe stammering that was noticeable because of his deafness, but it was probably some unintelligible, embarrassing language. This man was a spectacle. They didn't have hearing aids and they didn't have doctors that could deal with these things. Nobody really knew what was wrong. They just saw the expression of those things. People would try to talk to him and all they could hear was, you know, wah, 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 or whatever it would have sounded like. And I'm not trying to be funny or make light of that. What I'm trying to get you to see is that this man would have been a public spectacle for all of his life. And look, Jesus is not going to continue to further him as a spectacle. He's always been in the public eye. People have always been looking at him and casting their gaze upon him and staring at him. He's always been the center of attention. And if Jesus would have done this miracle and performed the meeting of this need in this public setting, it would have been to the delight of the crowd and the man would have been yet another spectacle and center of attention. But I think that Jesus is identifying with this man's social, psychological needs... And he knows that he's been a spectacle, and so he's going to meet his needs in a very different fashion. He's going to take him aside into a private place so that he's no longer going to be a public spectacle. So that this is going to be an individual, personal meeting of needs. And it's, it's far more than just the, just the opening of the ears. It's far more than just the loosing of the tongue. He's, he's going to meet his, 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 the needs of his mind. And the needs of his, of his heart. And, and, and he's, he's going to meet him where he is and he's going to give him the things that he needs. And so first the healing is very personal and it's very particular. William Hendrickson says this about this passage. Speaking of Jesus, it says he loves people not only in the mass but also individually. His heart goes out not only to the multitude but also to a man. To this particular man whom he treats differently than he would have treated anybody else. Guys, aren't you glad that Jesus knows your need and he treats you differently than he treats anybody else? <laughs> Jesus, he, Jesus' dealings with us are just not the waving of a wand and it's all the same for everybody. Jesus knows your hurts and your fears and your wants and your anxieties and your problems and your psychological issues and your spiritual issues. And he meets our needs and he heals and restores us personally, particularly, individually, and he deals with me and he deals with you, giving us exactly what we need by dealing with us in different ways than he would deal with anybody else. Praise God for the personal and particular nature of the healing of Christ. And you can take that, uh, you can take that and sort of take that metaphor, that analogy, if you will, and run it all the way to the cross where the ultimate act of healing particularly and personally for me and for you and for those that would believe takes place. Secondly, the healing is peculiar. I've already alluded to this. Well, it's peculiar that he takes him aside, but then look, it gets even, it gets even weirder. <laughs> and, and he put his fingers in his ears, the man's, and he spat probably on the ground or in, a, in the palm's hand and maybe he swirled around and then he touched his tongue, that is, with the spit. Most of us repulse at this idea. I mean, it's quite frankly kind of gross. Um, it, it just gets weirder and weirder. 
He's spitting, he's touching his tongue, they're sharing germs. And then look, and, and, and he looks up to heaven, he sighs, and then he speaks this word audibly. He, he calls out Ephatha. It's very interesting, isn't it? He uses a word, this is not a Greek word, and this is not a Hebrew word. This is an Aramaic word. Why Aramaic? Again, Jesus meeting the needs of the people where they are, personally and individually, because this would have been probably the, the language of the area. So Jesus is going to speak in a language that he would have known, that they would have known. I'll tell you a good question, just by side note. We all know the answer. Did the man hear him? He took him aside, so who is he talking to? He was talking to the guy. And he speaks audibly to a deaf man. Well, that's going to speak greatly to the power of the miracle, isn't it? That's going to be for us here in just a moment. That's going to be the third. But about his peculiarity, so he's... He's spitting, he's touching, he's talking, he's sighing, he's looking up to heaven. What's going on here? Again, I think that he is giving the man exactly what he needs. I think he's using sign language. The man couldn't speak. The man would have had no idea what he was doing. But Jesus, in his restoring, in his redeeming, in his healing, he wants to be expressly and particularly clear that people know what it is that he is doing. Jesus does not confuse and confound. Jesus redeems and restores with clarity. So that Jesus comes to the man and he uses the only language that the man can understand. That is touch. That's one of the senses that he still has. He can still see and he can still feel. And so Jesus is going to tell him. He's probably, I mean, we don't know. He's, he's putting his fingers in his ears. Why? Because he's going to heal his, anger, his, his ears. He's spitting and showing him, touching his tongue, that somehow part of him is going to be used to heal the man's tongue and to loosen it, that he is going to bring about this complete restoration. But Jesus wants him to know what it is that he's going to do before he does it. Listen, that's important, people, because Jesus wants us to know the truths about his redemption and restoration before he does it. That's why details are important. It's why doctrine is important. It's why the scriptures are important. Why does Jesus not just do for us? Why does he speak to us? Because he wants us to understand the doing. It's not, you know, this, it's not just me and Jesus. It's not just, well, I don't really know what he does. I just know that he does it. No, he wants us to know what he does. He wants us to be clear. Why? Because unless we're clear about how and why he does the doing, how are we ever to communicate it to those that need it done to them? Do you see? There's all these peculiarities, but I think at the end of the day, he is meeting the man where the man is. The man is deaf. He cannot hear. Speaking is probably not going to do much to him. He can't simply declare if he stood back. A lot of people say, oh, well, Jesus needed to do all these things. Look, he's, he's drawing on incantations and he's standing back and waving his magic wand. Remember, we've seen this is different, isn't it, than what we've seen about Jesus healing so far. Because up to this point, he does none of this. Spoken word and things change. See, be still, and it's over, right? Everything changes in a moment, and this is different. Why? Because this is a different dude. This is a different situation. And back to that quote, because he treated this man differently, particularly than he treated anybody else. It wasn't that Jesus needed to put his hands in his ears in order to heal his ears and to spit and touch his tongue in order to loose his tongue. Jesus didn't need to do any of these things. We've seen that already. Jesus made that abundantly clear. Jesus did these things for the benefit of the man. Listen, 
we should be eternally grateful that Christ doesn't leave us in confusion. But that he does things clearly and he does them in such a way that we know what he's doing and that we can understand what he's doing, that he meets us where we are and he speaks to us in a language that we can understand. You know, I'm, I'm up here talking and there are people of all different ages and all different backgrounds and all different educational levels and social statuses. And that's the way the church is supposed to be. You know, red and yellow, black and white, all, all different. We, we see culture differently. We understand that. How is it that all of you can benefit by the spoken word of one 31-year-old guy who comes from a particular place in a particular time with a particular worldview, who is particularly imperfect? It's because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, speaks to you individually and clearly in a language that you can understand. And we should thank the Lord for that. So he did not need any of this. He does it for the man. He takes him aside because he is going to identify with him on levels that he can understand. But then I I do want to make something of this issue of his sighing. Isn't this very interesting? Why does Jesus sigh? Well, sigh was the same in their day as it is for us. We sigh as as an expression of exasperation or frustration we sigh because we're tired and because we're weary and we sigh because we're brokenhearted and sad well i think that jesus sighs for the same reason because he is filled with compassion for this man and because as he looks upon the broken estate of creation man that was made to be in god's image to reflect something of his glory has been tainted such by sin that he can't hear and he can't speak and he's become a spectacle And I think Jesus is filled with compassion for the man. But Mark, I think, through Peter is trying to, or Peter through Mark is trying to teach us something specific. Uh, This is where language, I think, is helpful and important. Um, He uses a very, very specific word here for sigh. It is only used one other time in all of the Bible. It's used in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35, 5. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to find that passage and I'm going to read it for you. In Isaiah 35, 5, the prophet is speaking about the Redeemer that is coming and what it is that he is going to do and how it is that he is going to do it. And in 35, 5, listen to what it says. This is the only other place in all of God's word where this word is used. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs forth in water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And then he continues on and um, says, it, I'm trying to find it here. It says, anyway, it says further down in that passage, it says, and he will come with divine retribution. Do you see that? It's not a coincidence that he uses the same word here that's used in Isaiah 35 that begins that the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and open and the tongue of the dumb will sing. He's trying to say that this one that is coming, he has already come. <laughs> that, that God is here and he's bringing about this redemption. Not completely yet, But that day is coming that God is here. And this is a bit of a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the one that is coming. But what about this issue of divine retribution? Because Jesus, as we've seen him so far, he is not coming to bring divine retribution as Isaiah 35 talks about, is he? He's not smoking people left and right. He's serving people. You know, he's not he's not 
taking authority, he's giving authority. I mean, it, this is, it seems to be mixed up a little bit here, and I think it's because maybe we misunderstand. There is coming a day when he will come with divine retribution, but it will only be after, it will only follow this time and this day when he came, as Tim Keller tells us, not to bring divine retribution, but to bear divine retribution. So that there is a deeper identification here. He goes on, he says, on the cross, Jesus totally identifies with us as only he can in order to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to do all the things in order that he can pay the penalty. In order for this man's tongue to be loosed, Jesus had to become a dumb lamb before the shearers on the cross. Right? He... In Isaiah 35, he comes and the, 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 the dumb will sing and the, the deaf will hear. Because he's coming in divine retribution, not to bring it, but to bear it. And he ultimately bore it on the cross when not only does he identify with our physical and our social and our emotional needs as he does with this man, he is identifying with this man on the deepest level. On the deepest level, he is going to bear God's punishment on his behalf. He is going to become dumb before his shearers as a lamb in order that this man might sing and hear. So Isaiah 35, the illusion there, you can look at that later. So the healing is peculiar. Uh, The healing is personal or particular, but also the healing is powerful. What is it that happened? He looks up to heaven. He cries out in Aramaic to be opened. And then look in 35, immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and then it gives us this and he spoke plainly what have i told you time and time again about the about the nature of the miraculous healings of jesus they are always supernatural they are always let me get my list here creative and they are always immediate supernatural creative and immediate supernatural and then Something is being done that only God can do. So that it helps us to see that the point is not really the miracle in itself. It is to show us something of the person who did it. That he must and only be God. It is creative. Again, only God can bring something from nothing. He's not using things that are already there to bring about his means. It's just like in creation in Genesis chapter 1 when he hovers over the face of the deep and there is nothing. And by the simple spoken word, he brings everything to be. He he creates ex nihilo out of nothing. So that his miracles are always creative. How was this one created? Well, what do we know about someone who maybe gets a cochlear implant? You know, maybe is able to hear for the first time, who's never been able to speak. Do they just start rattling off well-spoken English? Absolutely not. They don't even understand the words that are being spoken to them because they've never heard them before. You must learn sound and language and speech. It is a learned thing. You must learn to hear it. You must learn to understand it before you can ever learn to express it. Right? I can tell my one-year-old child to come on, and she knows I mean to come. I can tell her to stop, and she knows I mean to stop. She cannot say come on or stop. So you must learn to understand before you can ever get to where you can express those things of language. But what did this guy do? Jesus created hearing, understanding, and speaking all in a moment's notice. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a powerful, powerful miracle. Only God can do these things. It's immediate. It says immediately. There's no time for training. It's not necessary because Jesus has done it. Guys, and let me tell you this, that as he, as he bears the divine retribution that we deserve on the cross, 
the healing of our problem of sin is equally as immediate and creative and supernatural. We read from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation ever. Immediately for those who believe in Christ Jesus, those who are in him, they are now different. They're now new. They're not now perfect. That day is coming. But the healing is supernatural. And then simply to pick up about the question I asked you a moment ago, and we're going to bring it to a close so we'll have time to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Isn't it interesting? I wonder whether or not the guy heard him. We know that it was immediate. We knew that Jesus, you know, he knew what he was going to do. And, and I don't know. He spoke out loud, I can only think, because maybe, maybe with the first, the first fraction of sound that came out of his mouth, he was healed. And so he was able to hear the word. I don't know, but I think it's interesting that he would speak as he pulls a deaf man off by himself, sort of personally, that he would speak to him in order to heal him. Um, this immediate, supernatural, creative power of Jesus, it helps us to see this and this alone that this man was truly God. He, he was truly the Messiah that was spoken of in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 35, all that we've looked at in the last three weeks, that he was God breaking into creation, as we saw in chapter 1 of this book, to redeem and to restore and to heal all that was broken. So let us trust then in Christ, this God-man, to meet us where we are, to love us particularly and individually, to love us peculiarly, giving us what he knows that we need, even when we don't know that we need it, to love us powerfully as he identifies on the deepest level with us, that he might heal us at our deepest point, that he might take care of our greatest sickness, and that is the sickness of sin. I mentioned to you beginning in the beginning that Jesus is coming to give ears to hear. I, I, love, this, I, I love this story because... On two other occasions, in chapter 4, twice, and then in chapter 7 here, uh, just earlier in the immediate context, we have heard over and over and over again, let him who has ears to hear listen. If you've been given ears to hear, guys, I, I think part of the point is this. None of us can hear on our own. None of us can hear Jesus. None of us can hear the Spirit. None of us can hear the Word apart from this miraculous, creative working of Jesus. And I think Jesus is showing us in giving ears to hear to this deaf man that, that if we will be open, that Jesus will give us ears to hear him. And, and my prayer this morning is simply that we would, that we would listen. For, for those of us who have been given ears to hear, that we would listen. Let us pray. Father, thank you uh, for the gospel. Thank you for this story about this man and about your creative, immediate, supernatural power that you've expressed, that you are God and that you meet us where we are. You speak to us in a language we understand in order to teach us about Christ. Thank you that you identified with us on all of these levels, but ultimately you identified with our sin on the cross. You bore upon yourself what you were not, that we might be what we are not, and that is righteous. Lord, as we now come to the time of celebrating your table, uh, partaking of your body and blood together, I pray that you would remind us of these great truths in the gospel, the great sacrifice that you made on our behalf, that we might have ears to hear and be healed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.